Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Live Discord Interactive Podcast where we aim to cover the burning topics related to all threat hunting and security stuff that hopefully you want to know about. So just as a reminder, throughout this podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions uh, from our Discord server. So if you want to participate, make sure you sign up using the link in the welcome message. If you're already on the Discord server, please you know contribute any kind of thoughts and ideas, uh, even if they're not friendly towards our ideas. If you think you have something contradictory, it's also a good conversation piece for us to dive into. Um, brief introductions uh, for those that are new to the podcast. I'm Scott Poli. I'm a, a content developer, threat hunter at Cyborg Security. Uh, got roughly 15 years of experience. You can check me out on LinkedIn, connect with me there. You can see I've had a wide array of expertise from management leadership and technical roles. Um, so hopefully I have something I can bring to the discussion, um, that we things we talk about today. And uh, Lee, if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, no, uh, I'm like the opposite of Foley. I'm, I've had about 15 years experience. Uh, I've been technical, not leadership. Well, I was leadership once. We don't talk about that. Um, but I, my main job really has been creating problems for Foley throughout his 15 years. Uh, but no, we started as network admin. Um, he pulled me into cybersecurity and I'm great with it. Um, and you can check out the rest on LinkedIn as well. Thank you for all for joining us. Yeah, so before we start, I want to make a couple of mentions so we don't forget. And that is, we'll be at Black Hat in Vegas this year in August. So if you happen to be going to Black Hat, come by our booth. We're at booth 2817. Um, you can come by, say hello, talk threat hunting. And also, you can enter for one of four amazing giveaways. Um, that You'll have to come find out what those are by showing up and checking them out. Also, you know, we have a partnership with Quarter Future there. So... We'll be showing how teams can operationalize threat intelligence with behavioral threat hunting. So there should be some pretty cool demos at the booth on those topics. And we also have an exclusive happy hour, um, Hunt Down a Good Time, which is in partnership with also Recorded Future. And this is an exclusive invite-only event. But if you listeners, if you come swing by the booth, you can get an exclusive invite to that happy hour. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons to stop by. And then also, last but not least... Lee here, he's actually going to be doing a training at Black Hat called Beyond IOCs, How to Effectively Threat Hunt Using TTPs and Behaviors. I don't know if you want to do a quick plug for that, Lee, since you put off all that together. No, so it was just, um, it was a culmination of what we do with our customers and how we can not only, like, we're not just a product company. We're not just going to throw something at you, um, I guess, to get off my salesy pitch. But the idea is that we want to train threat hunters as well. There's a big gap and there's a different mentality from incident response and defer um, to responding to alerts. The proactive approach is, you know, it's just kind of tougher to pull into. I know I even struggle with it whenever I first tried moving from a security analyst in a SOC to threat hunting. But we want to teach the idea of what's behind that. Um, so there's some lecture, there's a good old death by PowerPoint as usual. Um, but it covers a lot of references that we use during our prepping and planning stages. So that once we have the Intel, once we have some hypotheses to go off of, then we actually create some queries 
we prevent or um, we've given the students a VM with log files in it. So if you've been to our workshops, it's similar to that, but on a grander scale. And the idea is that we're going to walk through the first hunt. We're going to put together hypotheses. We're going to hunt for some data. And then the next day, it's kind of going to be, I'm going to throw an Intel report at them, put them in teams and see how they do. Uh, I'll definitely be there to support, of course. Um, but it's like a big check on learning. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm really excited for Black this year. Yeah, be a good time. So something else, if you're new to our live podcast, is we always do a featured cocktail. Um, the one we're featuring this time is called the Biteberry Burst. Um, you can see it on my camera. I don't know if you guys can see it so well. This is a, kind of a purplish-looking drink now, but it's actually pretty flavorful. I'm not one for fruity drinks, but it's not fruity, ironically. Kind of has lot. Well, either way, I'm drinking it. I'm enjoying it. So at the end, if you are partaking, we'll we'll love some feedback because I think we should probably put together like a, the greatest drinks if we can get enough scores from people trying it. Like maybe put together a mixology cyborg book or something. I don't know. Just <laughs> ideas going out there. So with that, let's dive into what we usually do: is the four interesting artifacts. We're we're down one person, um, so we're going to expand one of those topics a little more. Um, so it's. Just Lee and I diving through, and I think I'll start with the first one. So the first one is AI Mod 2. I don't know if we've talked about this before. I don't know if we really have, but it's a GitHub. So it's on GitHub. Um, Dark Quasar is the kind of owner of it, but it's kind of a, a methodology, and it's kind of an interesting approach to threat hunting. It overlaps a lot of kind of uh, what we talk about when we drive to, but he does a very, like, kind of looks at threat hunting as a data science type um, idea, like an extension of data science type work and analytics. But one of the things I did like was he kind of broke out three or no, four areas that he wanted to basically group threat hunting in. So I always said there's three areas, you know, mine were, you know, that kind of the data analysis driven, threat intel driven and situation, situational awareness driven. And they kind of fit in um, certain places. He has four, and his first one is exploratory data analysis, which is similar to what we say would be data analysis driven. Like, hey, I've got some ideas or some maybe analytics that are more mathematical based or rarity or whatever that looks like um, that might identify something interesting. Um, and then he's got an hypothesis based operation, which is basically kind of like threat intel driven, but I think he distinguishes it where you don't have really good targeted intel, just ideas. So it's more information driven. That's kind of how I looked at it. I might be looking at it incorrectly. But his next one is threat informed operations, which is kind of that hypothesis driven, but you have more intel to support it. Um, but that kind of made me think of how we look at threat intel driven hunts, where we kind of have like the hunt, which is more of the broad behavior, and then the targeted, where we're looking for exactly how an actor will do things. So very characteristic to that specific approach, that specific campaign, and so forth. Um, then they also, he mentioned disruptive purple operations. And this one was interesting because he was talking about how you can leverage red teams and blue teams for how they get around and learn how they can attack your specific environment um, based on tried and true things, based on your architecture and things like that. And that's kind of aligns with our situational awareness-driven hunts where we're looking at how well do you know yourself and how you're set up and where your things are so that you know how to identify odd behavior or weird interactions. Um, 
but it's kind of an interesting read. So I would say, you know, check it out. I, I didn't read word for word, but I was able to scroll through it and actually pull up some pretty interesting ideas. And I really liked how he's thinking about things, especially from a data driven perspective, not, um, you know, sometimes you see some of these frameworks or ideas about topics and they're so kind of generalized, really, really high level. So that part was really nice. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, Lee. So no, I, I took a look at it um, briefly while you were talking, but I will say the thing that I love about uh, the approach that I, the couple things I picked out from what you were saying was um, the, the data science behind. I know you're a big proponent of approaching complex problems with data because the data tells the truth. Um, and I mean, that's why we have jobs. Well, but the idea of putting all these algorithms and stuff that exist to attempt with threat hunting is really valuable. Um, there are a couple tools that we use um, and we support that allow that behavior to um, really shine through. Uh, and a couple of those are some, or there's an EDR, there's a sim, but they have that machine learning AI technology. Um, the idea is that one of the biggest questions or one of the biggest tasks from threat hunting is how do I know if it's abnormal? And I'm going to pose that question to the group. If you've, if you've ever encountered that problem or if you've ever had answers or have found a creative way to answer it, Please let us know. Please let the, uh, the group know. Um, but that's the toughest question for customer because we're not in the data. We're not sitting there side by side learning their environment. So by being able to leverage those tools of the um, machine learning and pick out the anomalies, you can actually um, figure that out easier. Like one of the examples is you can use machine learning and like statistics based commands to figure out what was the deviation between process duration or connection duration and see, you know, and because it's looking at the big data and the big story better than any human can, we can actually leverage those queries to say, well, let's take a look at all your connections. What do they look like? How normal are they over, you know, a year? And then it'll say, this is an outlier. This was a 10 second. This was a 16 week connection. What's up with that? Um, so anytime I hear that, I, I always get excited, um, simply because that is a great uh, solution um, to, or a great application uh, to figuring that out from. Um, I like the outcomes because we always talk about metrics. Um, mm. These are kind of general, looking at threat hunt playbook, uh, threat hunt report and communications, um, which is normal. Um, I guess that's a great, um, I guess, Point, starting point uh, to start building off. Um, but we really like to think about, you know, what does a successful outcome look like? And that's a, that's right. a struggle. It's always tough. Yeah, it's a struggle because as a security as security operations center analyst, metrics are top and down. You know this. So I, actually, before I continue on, I'm going to ask you a question um, from back in the day. What was, I mean, what was the metric or what was the and the most effective metric that you found when it came to approaching the, hey, our SOC analyst, not only are they doing their jobs, but we're improved. Yeah, so some of that, I mean, it's, 
it's a pretty long-winded discussion if I were to break it apart. Um, but seeing, being able to see people mature, so you know that people are growing and becoming more capable means that you're already getting better returns on your SOC in general or your security operation. And then also, if you're continuously adding capabilities, not necessarily by buying technology, but capabilities that really enable your processes to be more automated or processes to be more higher fidelity and things like that. You can measure those things. I think those are really strong wins. But, um, you know, where I like to always start, and if you've, you know, I gave a webinar about uh, one of our top covers about metrics in general. Um, and that is looking at KPIs first. Like, what are the basic things? Because that's what everyone measures for metrics. And then figure out how that fits into your operation to really, like, define. Because I think everybody might have similar metrics, but everyone's always going to have some unique metrics based on their specific operation. I think that's what's really hard is everyone tries to find that one-size-fits-all fit, type perspective when it comes to metrics. And your... might be... Yeah, go ahead. What's KPI? Uh, key performance indicators, right? So those are like raw numbers. Like we had 60 cases or 120 cases this month. You know, that it's interesting to know that number and track it over time. But, like, what does it mean? Like, you could assign meaning to that, you have to have a lot more context, and it, it could be on a case-by-case -case context. And so, like, it could get challenging. Um, but, like I said, you know, you, you don't do the one-size-fits-all. You kind of learn ideas from others. But, you, I mean, you only can really build metrics on data you collect anyway. So, so yeah, that's kind of my take on that. that. That makes sense. Um, And I guess, so the difficulty in thread hunting is... Just like the scientific method, you have a hypothesis, you create it, you test it, and you prove whether it was true or false. If it's false, you go back to the drawing board, um, and you know, re-attack, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, they do the same thing in metrics. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, in science, that's exciting, right? Like, oh, we failed. Uh, whatever, let's figure out how to make, yeah. In business, I can't imagine a lot of board members are excited if you throw a bunch of money at thrift hunting and get zero results. When they say, well, did you find anything? It's like, no, we didn't find anything. It's like, well, what are you doing? It's like, no, no, that's a good thing. But to be able to talk about what a successful hunt looks like, especially because we are hypothesizing, we're guessing what's in our environment, um, but educated guesses, um, you know, it's, it's just a different battle. So I, I like that approach. I like the idea that they mentioned successful outcomes. Um, and I guess it, it's good to interpret to other people. You think of it this way, like as long as you have no major incidents, right, that says like, whoops, we missed something big, um, and you can show that you're maturing, uh, those are really the, the key points you really want to get across to that high level because as we can say, technology and security is always changing. If you're not maturing, you're not going to keep up, right? So you can kind of play that perspective and then you can say, and we haven't had a major breach. So, hey, we're doing pretty good, right? So, um, you know, you can kind of focus as that's like your long-term goal to be able to prove those things. How you prove them is based on environment. Cool. You got anything else or are you want me to jump to my next, uh, next artifact or fine? All right. So I know, I don't know. I say I know. I assume that a lot of our listeners um, are familiar with SANS and probably have dug, dug into some SANS posters or SANS resources and so forth. Um, but they kind of have a cool GitHub 
um, spot too, where a lot of their open source tooling they develop for some, they, they use them in their classes. They're very effective tooling if you want to use some open source tooling for security. Um, but they they're always have really good contextual data with their tooling. So an example of this, Deep Blue CLI. It's in their Sans Blue Team um, location on GitHub. Um, what's cool is this whole concept they have is they're basically, I think it's Python packed or Python code running against local Windows events, but looking for like hunting, like hunting for behaviors locally on the machine, just on the Windows events that are there. So obviously you, you think, well, okay, that's not really applicable in like a large scale, but I think there's a lot to be learned there. First, if you're able to look at code, you can kind of see what techniques are they looking at or how are they looking at these behaviors. Um, you can kind of reverse engineer some of that. But the even better thing that I really love um, is they provide Windows event logs for every technique they are able to identify so you can prove that it works, like their stuff works. So they have stuff with some C2 servers involved. They have stuff with different types of lateral movement. They have different things for password or account, you know, a type of tax. Um, so I think that's a great source. We talked about data before. You know, one of the ways that you kind of are able to validate your hunt or, um, I guess, run your ideas to the ground so you know you could threat hunt for this if there's even data available. There's a treasure trove of data available there. So if you haven't seen that, I would definitely say check that out. Um, they One thing they advise you is if you pull down some of the um, those log files because they have certain strings in, in there that are associated uh, known bad, um, your, your antivirus might flag on the logs and prevent you from downloading them or try to erase They're They're clean logs. They're just logs. Uh, but since it's an EVTX file, I, I think it might be binary data based on how they store it. So that's kind of why it gets inspected the way it does. Um, but really cool source. One of the things I wanted to ask our community too when I saw this was, man, does anyone else know of any good sources um, for getting kind of good test data to either hunt in or of certain techniques, attacks, and then try to like replay or things like that? Um, because I always think those are treasure troves. Um, of good finds because they really help a lot accelerate what you're trying to do and just on the blue team, you know, agenda in general. So I'll ask what you think, but yeah, if anyone has any ideas or anything, please throw those in the chat. Um, that'd be great. So total, um, I'll answer the question in a second. Um, total sidetrack. Now I'm trying to find it. They're, um, I'll find the post later. I'll find the information out. I think I saw Sands was offering a can't remember. Um, and, and don't quote me on this because I I read it in passing. But I think I saw something where they say you can pursue a degree through Sands, but they won't start charging you until you get hired. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got to look into that be more. Uh, but if there are people out here on the Discord that are currently trying to figure out their way into cybersecurity, that kind of seems like a really good opportunity. Uh, it, it sands. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you're not familiar with who they are, they are like the organization that government top 100 or Fortune 100 companies send their people to to learn for professional certifications right so normally you carry a sand certi certificate with you that carries a lot of weight so this is a great opportunity and i'm hoping 
either I can find it or Soupy can find it. Um, but either way. Yeah, I can um, speak to that. I know someone who's actually going to go through it um, and they got accepted. Yeah. So, so what's really cool is it with, you know, the, the bachelor's and the master's program, if you if you already have credits, like up to 70 credits, um, then you can apply for the bachelor's program. And that pretty much takes similar coursework and you give come out with, I think, eight or nine certifications as well. And uh, you don't have to pay tuition, like you said, until you get your first job and then you start paying on it. So it's kind of covered up front, but I think there is like a $1,500 down payment up front. So like, that's what you have to kind of pay to kind of honor, like, I'm going to take this serious, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's very cool as far as they're offering that. And they said the average student that graduates makes over 90 K. I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, that's, that's something, but. Um, they're just trying to say that their their training has value, um, even if you have to invest into it, right? Yeah. So I'll remember that's all geolocation driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, J Dub uh, dropped a cool little tool. I haven't I haven't seen that one. Yamato Security, the Hayabusa. It's a Sigma based threat hunting and fast forensics timeline generator. I don't have to check that one out. Um, it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. So. Thanks for the share. Thanks, Raider. Um, oh, so is that it? Okay, question to you. Because I am looking at the uh, Deep Blue CLI. Okay. Um, cause, so there's always a question, or in the back of my mind is, or <laughs> I would love to log everything, right? Mm-hmm. Sims don't want, or I guess the Sim companies want that because they can charge more for ingestion. But companies don't want that would this tool be the gap filler between like so you have edr but i'm going to say the normal or ideal set you have edr right it's logging all the endpoint uh, edr stuff endpoint detection then you have your sim which you're pumping in almost everything else everything else that you're for or that you worry about talking about authentication logs uh curb roasting, uh, what else, logs, or um, cloud logs, network logs, etc. Could you feasibly turn on auditing from all the other event logs that you yeah. want to log, but you can't, and use this as a um, use this as a tool to fill that gap? And holy so I think um uh, my audio is coming through. I had to kill my webcam because I guess Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So you're saying they can only see me? Can you hear me? Sorry guys. Yes, I can. No, I had to kill my webcam because my my internet was going crazy. Hopefully you can hear me now. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> Yes, I can hear. I thought I was going to go down because there's a storm raging outside, but apparently it's full. This is going to get interesting. Yeah, no, it's... My webcam is... How about now? Yeah. So your question, right? Yes. Uh, 
Yes, I think this is a great source to say what validated log sources help you identify these behaviors or activities. Um, because it basically is saying, because I think they collect all the logs, security application system. And so you can kind of see what is the best fit for some of the things they're trying to find. Um, so it's always really good when you have real attack behavior to identify log stuff, but there's just like the common stuff. I mean, I don't think you can ever get away from execution. I don't think you can ever get away from authentication. Um, and those are really high volume sources. Uh, so you, then you really start to get creative about, well, what are some of the ways that we can detect, um, very obscure things or very specific things. Uh, and, you know, I fall back to this. This monk kind of covers all, all those areas with their different log types. So that's why it's kind of my favorite. Um, but that's kind of where I would take that question, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And JL's got a good point. Um, normally, threat actors land and they clear logs. So that will, mm -hmm. might not be. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's more of a learning experience for sure. Yeah. That's why I like it. Unless. It's always better to, to forward the logs every, every you know every instance. Um, tool from like a sandbox. If you have malware and you were to then hunt with this type of tool and you're able to use it like a malware analysis box, that might be a cool application to see what what gets identified. Things like that too. So that makes sense. So yeah, the moving on. Um, so this next, it's not like a, a single topic. So I'm gonna kind of drill through a bunch of things, assuming that I can. My connection can stay fresh. Um, yeah. So I went through my bookmarks because I'm one of those freaks that opens thousands of tabs. It doesn't close any of them. And then I have that rare occasion where I have like this anxiety. If I lose a tab, I need to make sure to find it again. So I bookmark it. My God. I hate restarting. I hate it. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. Safari has that open all last tabs from last session option. Yeah, so I went through before this podcast some of my favorite resources. So um, as you guys are hearing some of these resources, you know, the people listening, um, one, you know, I'd be interested if you actually use these or look at these at all, um, the ones they mentioned. But also, if you guys have other, like, favorite go-to, like, this is how I solve these types of problems or answer these types of questions on a regular basis, uh, those would be good to share because I feel like, of all the value I've gotten, other than like having conversations with people in the field, it's what resources they use the most. Like I love when people are like, "Hey, I don't know if you guys have seen this," and you're like, "Oh, it's mind blowing!" Like I wish I knew about that, you know, years ago. Um, so that's kind of why I put together this list. Um, so I call them the top sources commonly re referenced. Um, the first one is uh, Xcyclopedia. It's a Strontic GitHub.io location, but the Xcyclopedia is basically They've accumulated a list of every single known executable, um, what the di digital signature is, how many versions there are of it, um, what have you. And it's, you know, the most common executables too. So you th you're talking about operating systems, common tools, installs, and things like that. And it's huge, and they just keep growing it. And I wish I knew about this when I was doing SOC analyst work. Because when you start getting detections on weird executables that you're like, I don't even know what this is. Like, is this even like on the operating system or is this a tool that we may use? Like, and what's great is it gives you descriptions and lets you dive in and search for those things. Um, we even had an instance where we were looking at a weird version of calc that apparently 
depending on what packages you install on a server, will install this like calc 32 or whatever. Uh, and I remember talking to someone about, I'm like, I don't know. I've never heard of that. I don't even know if that's a real thing. Like doesn't sound good to me. Um, but I was able to look it up and know that, yeah, it's signed the same way. It holds the same digital signature, has the exact same hash. It's just, this is one of the component. Um, and so I feel like these tools, even though they don't maybe help you come up with new detection content, they're a fast way to resolve alerts or a fast way to get answers. Um, so I wanted to share that resource because I thought that was super cool. I don't know if you checked that out, Lee. No, no, I have not. Okay. Um, so I'm going to keep going then. Yep, keep going. All right. Yeah, just jump in, I guess. I'll just run through these. If you have anything to say, just cut me off. Um, the other one is the, I mean, you probably have something to say on this one. It's the, the low boss project with Love like it. all the low, low bins, right? So this is, uh, yeah. I like to put these two together, right? Because the first one's like, well, what's common or known? Um, the next one is really focusing on, okay, for the things that are common and known that have been used maliciously, here's the list and they sometimes provide good examples of like command line arguments that are used in those instances uh which can be very helpful uh so this is a great place to then potentially build content or figure out what you want to look for from a security perspective and also give you some insight as far as what are some things maybe you want to profile to normalize like hey i know that we use this executable across our environment because it's very normal what does normal look like on a day-to-day? -day? So when someone does use it in a malicious way, how would it look different? Um, so I love that source. That was a fantastic project. Wish it existed a long time ago, too. Um, right. That yeah, happens things I wish I knew beforehand. Like that. Yeah, that's why I want to share these now. So hopefully, like, if people are in the same boat or just starting out especially, like, here's some things that can really accelerate some of the pain points I guess I went through, right? Yes. Uh, um, the low bass is really that I've used it plenty of times. Um, not only when um when creating hunt packages, but um even in emulation when I'm creating like a workshop or something. But I will say that gives you a great avenue to go to the documentation. Um while this Lobaz project is very specific and gives you some real-world examples of living up land binaries um, or native executables that came with the operating system, um, they you know they give you a good direction of saying, "Hey, this is a good place to start." Where you really want to go to is the documentation of Microsoft. If you can find, like, because don't get me wrong, Lobaz is really is a pretty complete document, but whenever you start to do their research and you start looking in your environment, you're going to find all these parameters that aren't listed because they're not used for maliciousness yet. But you still might want to figure out what it is. So going to the um, pivoting from the Little Bass project to the Microsoft um, documentation, I've done it plenty of times, and honestly, it, it really helps. You'll find that in one obscure slash why, what does that mean with this? What And really what it does, it tells you the intentions of that command. So you could see like two file names and you see a slash line, you say like, well, what is that doing? And it could be copying, it could be deleting, it could be moving. I, I don't, okay. It's just, it just answers your questions. So something I want to mention before we go too far, because we were talking about security data before, 
I didn't see it until now, but Sackboy UK, he had a really good post about securitydatasets.com. I haven't looked into it, but it sounds like a really cool, I mean, it sounds like a dedicated source for doing exactly what we're describing. So thanks for the share there. I'll have to check that out. Um, so along the lines of trying to validate if something is normal, you know, we talked about the executable side. This is a great source. Um, it's uh, gray noise. So if you go to viz.graynoise.io, um, it is a paid for product, but they kind of have, it's kind of like how virus total can work, right? You can get more stuff, um, from them if you pay, but they basically track what is the common noise or activity that's happening across all the sensors that they have deployed all over the you know world for network visibility. Um, and if you see like, you know, sometimes you have an IP that's just blowing up your, your alerts or something like that from external. And you're like, well, do I really care? Is it just a typical noise? Like, what is that? And sometimes you'll even get asked, like, you know, maybe if you have leadership that's like, hey, I keep seeing this in our reports or cases or whatever. Like, what is this? It's a great way to get a good common answer that is kind of supported and community driven as far as, you know, what they have. And it's gives you what it is, how it's been seen. They even have tags. So, like, for instance, uh, if you were to, like, you know, search the tag Mirai botnet or Mirai, I think, it'll give you all the list of known activities they've seen from endpoints that are doing that. And then what is the endpoints typically have done in the past for scanning or if you look up, different DNS servers, they'll tell you, oh, it's a DNS server, and that's what they're going to, and it's owned by so-and-so. And it gives you some more context of how it's just kind of been organically seen. And you know that if you see it there, it's been seen elsewhere. So if you don't see activity there, and you see suspicious activity on your edge, it might be more of a targeted approach. So you can kind of use it that way too. Um, I don't know if it's as, I, it's not as full where you can like look up tags and try to dig and hunt through the data unless you pay for it. But if you have specific IPs and things, or maybe even domains, I think you can do domains, um, you can throw those in there and it'll, it'll kind of spit back really good information. So I know uh, we've talked about gray noise before, Lee. Do you remember uh, ever using it? No, I don't, I don't think I ever used it. Um, quite frankly, um, back when we worked together prior, I was still drinking from the fire hose and you know, just struggling to keep my head above water. Um, but visiting it now and taking a look at what it has to offer um you're right on the money it looks like virus total for different things um which i guess comes with that caution of if you do see a unique ip address and it is acting suspicious and you throw it in gray noise and it says no it looks good to me doesn't always mean that it's going to be malicious correct yeah it's context right because even they'll even like flag some of these and say some of these IPs are spoofable. Like they'll say that as for whatever it is. And so then you kind of know like, yeah, if you say activity, it might not be from that real source, depending on the kind of activity you see. It is neat. I threw in Cobalt Strike as a tag and it found some stuff. Yeah, um, some beacons that are known. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's very valuable. Um, and but you can't, you only can see like the top so many results though, because you don't pay. Right. So. So it's good if you know the IP, but if you were to scroll down, you're kind of like, uh, you only see like 10. JDub says that's why we cross-check against multiple sources. Absolutely. Uh, it's never just one and we're good. We need verification and validation and verification. Um, I definitely see um, the use of this. I will say from a threat hunter's perspective, this kind of answers questions right. um, of what is this versus um 
Or I guess it, it kind of leans into the attribution game, right? Well, oh, it's also good. I mean, it's called gray noise, so it's like not. It's like just the noise you might see in this field to begin with. And how do you deal with it? Like the first example I put in was eight dot eight dot eight dot eight, which is Google being asked, and it said trust level reasonably ignore. So I like that. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's definitely that definitely helps. But be careful what you reasonably ignore. Yeah, and Linux Ace brings up a good point with the lull drivers. We've, we've seen and we, I've looked at that before. It's just not something I've gone to a lot, but I think it's going to be a valuable resource. And especially, you know, there's been a lot more frequent attacks that have been using the driver-based um, kind of approach. Um, so that is kind of cool. And it's an area where, like, I guess a lot of people don't think about. So it's kind of good that it exists, so it kind of puts it on their radar. Because I feel like the Lulbin stuff that really kind of matured everybody all at once just because that resource is there. So hopefully the, the Lull drivers will be the same. Absolutely. So moving on, this is one that I'm sure a lot of people have seen. If they haven't, they, they gets, it's kind of fun to play with in general, but um, CyberChef, right? Um, it's one of these tools that I wish I knew about a long time ago, which I don't know when it you know came to be. Um, but it's a great tool for if you're looking at code that's obfuscated or there's data manipulation you need to do on some data you already have, um, you know, they have, a, you know, the idea is, is you have an input and you can put any kind of text or anything you want in there. And you have all these, what they call recipes because it's cyber chef, right? And the recipes might be like uh, de-encrypting something if you have the right key and parts that you need, or it could be encrypting it so you can go both directions. It could be encoding or decoding. It could be substitution for string based type of things you can do. A huge array of things, but one of the things I really like, especially when you're new and you don't really know what you're looking at, and you can pull parts of, say, a, a PowerShell script that looks all encoded, you can drop things in, or even from, like, network payloads, and you can run magic, which is a recipe, and it kind of does, like, the most popular common manipulations that you would potentially d utilize, and the output gives you, like, suggestions and how strong that suggestion is based on it actually producing a a decent result. Um, so it's kind of a quick way to like look at, you know, code or network data or things um, and be able to possibly pull valuable data and context out of them. And if you ever do capture the flags or CTFs, it's just like the go-to tool for a lot of um, pieces of those or a lot of those challenges. Um, so definitely if you like to do those things, it's should probably already is part of your toolkit, but I just want to make sure to mention it because I think it's a super cool resource um, to do a bunch of different applications. Absolutely. Uh, one of the biggest things I use for it um, during trainings is uh, <clears throat> by default, PowerShell uses base64 encoding. So why not take that encoding command that you found? Because um, we're always talking about artifacts. How do we find artifacts? What do, where do we pivot from there? And you, if you decode that base 64 that might just open up a whole can of worms or give you the smoking gun that you needed um right more recipe actually i'm gonna try and find mine real quick but yeah with, uh, I do with it. more to offer i just haven't been creative enough to spend a lot of time and figure what those things are um but i'm sure there's other githubs that have cyber chef recipes yeah, so Comrade Panda makes a good point. Um, you can download a copy of it and run it locally. You don't have to go to the website. So you can kind of have it on, offline or your own you know, run version there. And you can save your recipes. 
so you can repeat things as well. And as you're looking up your recipe, one of the things that I've come across in a lot of where I had to pull out PowerShell type things out of, I don't know, different payloads and whatever. Uh, what I always hate seeing is when people put null characters in between each character. So it prevents things from easily detecting it because there actually is a character, but depending on what's rendering it, you may or may not see them. The CyberChef sees everything. And so it's a great place where you can pull out all those null characters and you can kind of rerun or make the code reverse itself if you know what you're doing with some of those things. Um, so kind of a cool there idea there. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the recipe of choice I use is from base 64 regular expression, and adds remove null bytes um, simply because once you've moved up from base 64, you get some human-readable text uh, but it's still broken. It still looks like a mess. The regular expression part, it actually um, cleans, up, cleans it up into almost human readable. And then the remove null bytes uh, function or module puts it all together. Um, if I'm quick enough, I'll, I'll get you guys an example of what the end product looks like. Cool. All right, so I'll step on. So uh, I talk about really good you know, resources uh, one of the things I've used a lot more when I was operational, not so much kind of what I'm doing specifically now, but Eric Zimmerman, he's a great forensic tool um, creator. He's created some of the best in, uh, industry standard tools, to be honest. So he has a GitHub and all his tools, I believe, are open source. And he even writes manuals for them. And what's really cool is he's really big about optimization and efficiency so pretty much all of his tools he'll like measure how fast they do things and that's kind of built in so you can kind of see if you want to operationalize something or script something by using some of his tools you'll kind of know what to expect if you want to do it on a bigger scale um, but why I liked his tools so much especially early on in my career was using his tools really gave me a great way to understand the operating system and how what data tracks different activities um, some of the data is not always in logs, right? Because that's why it's more he's more forensics driven. But it kind of gave me an idea for, okay, well, if we needed to do, say, an instant response, like what would I really care the most about and get the most from versus if I want to try to detect something versus how does this thing even work? Um, so there's a great set of tools. I, you know, I would definitely play and dig into them. Um, they're really pretty cool. Um, so, yeah. Basically, it's kind of helps you mature some of your hypotheses too. So if you are trying to thread hunt, that's kind of how I've thought about some of these tools today. Um, is you might have an idea. Well, they're maybe they're doing this, and I know this works like this because I've you know played with some of these tools and seen how these things interact and why this happens or whatever. Um, so it helps you kind of come up with better approaches so you get better validation. I know it's kind of very vague in general, but <laughs> it's kind of some of the notes I was reading from that I took. I think that's what I was trying to say, but, uh, but yeah. Well, that's what happens when they have all these tools, but I actually sat, um, I think Raider and J-Dub were throwing these out. I think every podcast we have just because they rely on them so much and they are such great tools. And I actually sat with Raider one time and he showed me the value of Timeline Explorer and I believe it's Kate. Um, Kate is awesome. Raider, if you're listening and I butchered that, I apologize. Um, but the fact that it's it's like threat hunting from almost a digital forensics perspective um, where like you know something went down. Now you got to figure it out. These are the tools I would want in my toolbox 
Um, and it's just great. Like, it's just, it gives you exactly what you're looking for. The event logs that are needed. I believe the uh, master file table was also where you can pull artifacts from there as well. Actually, that might be from Velociraptor. But either way. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Velociraptor is kind of a cool EDR tool, open source. Yeah, but it's just great. They're like they are, These are the tools that you would want to use to figure out what was going on. So yeah, uh, I'm going to butcher the name because I'm just bad at reading. As you heard me try to read my notes earlier, but Shimoni. <laughs> if I said it correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that looks really cool. He has like a, it's a GitHub repo that's the DFIR artifact museum, but it looks at basically uh, various OS artifacts and then categorize them by type. Uh, that'd be hugely beneficial. So I'm going to have to add that repo for sure, uh, especially when I'm kind of digging into the thing, things apart. So it's a great picture. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Things I pulled in. Oh, I appreciate that. Oh, and Chainsaw. Chainsaw before, too. It's a, a pretty cool way to kind of hunt through Windows logs and things like that and artifacts. Great share as well. Four more. Um, next two hopefully will go pretty quick because they're not, um, they're really good for from a throttle perspective and a resource. Um, and they're looking kind of the attack team side, right? So the iRed.team. Yep. It's really just a red team tactics kind of manual, uh, topical. Uh, there's a lot of like Kali use and some of the tools there they have there. I feel like there's less hands-on keyboard than the the next tool I'll bring up. Like it's more about configuration and payload dropping and interacting, um, per se. But you know, for some attacks that you want to validate if your detections work or you want to build something that detects those things, it's always good to have ways to emulate. Um, and they have really good kind of you know start to finish processes for some of those things, or something that I always see there's a struggle with, and that is it's very easy for all of us in security to be like, I completely understand that attack. I know what they're trying to do. I kind of know the inner workings, but we're not so familiar with the data that supports that, right? And I was trying to come coin a term um, for what that really means, and we're very good understanding um the methodology, but really bad at understanding the attack, attack data comprehension piece. Um, and so that's why I think it's cool to be able to do these things so that not only can you say, I understand what the attack's trying to achieve and how, and I also understand the supporting attack data and can comprehend exactly what that means when I'm identifying it or looking for it. Um, so there's that. And then the next one was, um, it's the hacktricks.xyz. That's, I think, my more favorite resource for this. So it covers the red team stuff, but also stems to more purpling. Um, so it has some, like, how do you harden a system, or what are some ways you can detect the attack I just did, and then also some hands-on keyboard, like if I was, you know, had a terminal or access, what are some of the things I would do to perform these techniques? Techniques. And so, yeah, um, I think it's a really good resource for this. And I know a lot of people that do kind of red team emulation um, internally for other organizations. This is kind of like when I ask them, like, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, I don't know. I'll just go here and look this stuff up and then kind of go from there. So that's kind of how I found this resource. So it's people actually using it. Um, so the same thing. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just saying, I like it. I'm looking at it now. Um, I, I still like So I, I guess I'm a fan of iRed Team because I've actually used it at work. Um, and by the way, it's mapped to the MITRE tech 
Matrix, which if you don't know, I'm kind of a geek for. Um, but I, I, it's answered a lot of questions, um, specifically around, um, you know, how just using persistence as an example, you know, I'm always looking for, I don't know why that's my favorite one, but it's just like, how are they sticking around? How are they sticking around? And they have a bunch of different options. And not only that, but they also provide a lot more detail in it. Like Lobass was a great place to start. Like, hey, you know, these are the binaries that are being abused. Then you can come to iRed team and say, I want to see what's, you know, how is scheduled task being abused? And then they, they give you like a whole page of, hey, here's how you execute it. Here's how you observe it. And there's like some um, process hacker um, or not process, uh, process monitor, process explorer, yeah. um, process explorer screenshots. Then it shows you the logs to look for. Um, kind of the same concept of not only like, are you looking for this? But if you're looking for it, here's the place you want to look for it. Here's the data. Here's what you should see. Um, and if there are anything else that involved with it, they talk about like just the example I'm looking at, they said not only is scheduled task used for um, persistence, but here's how you find execution and here's how you find lateral movement is simply by looking at the, um, the parameter slash RU system. So run at um, running as system. So simply by that, if they create a scheduled task and they run it as system, they've already gained privilege escalation. Um, but I really like that resource. Um, you hit it on, you hit it right there though, but like, you know, it explains and shows you the data that you need to be. Back to yeah. The no, that's good. And then the, the next one is really a more of a current event type thing, but also a way to kind of dig into uh, like, if you really want to find good actionable threat Intel or, or malware to kind of play with. Um, if you, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with VX underground. Um, but they had this great. Yeah. Um, I, I, I believe kind of how they function is they actually have people that kind of are in part of the criminal org groups or way to kind of keep tabs on what's going on. Um, but they're always there on Twitter, um, and other places. And pretty much when you hear current events, you might, they might actually have more information or they might be the breaking news for the current event. You know, I don't know, but, uh, if they're vxundergroundorg and they have slash APTs, and basically what it is, it's like a repo or a, you know share of everything time stamped. But they have like APT reports in there. They have malware samples. They have you know, all sorts of different types of reports. Um, they can kind of help stay current, but it's something you can also take and use when you want to study certain adversaries or certain techniques. It's a great place to dig into. And then in, especially when they have like malware tied to those reports and things like that and you have sandboxes where you can kind of reverse engineer or study behaviors or whatever you can use some of their malware and stuff as well um so i think it's really um, a good source uh that's open source and because it's always addressing relevant threats right um i feel like you know they're talking about what other people are going to be talking about asking about um breaking news type stuff um, but they always collect really good information. So it's a great place for you have time to kind of dig in their random stuff. Or if you're just like researching and trying to, you know, target certain things, you can kind of crawl their stuff for that. So. Now, love they, they have a lot of samples out there. They got papers, they got resources. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really nice, it's just a really nice one stop. And then the last one I'm going to throw in there, which I'm not going to go into too much explaining, but 
if you have a hard time using Google to get the answers, just use ChatGPT, which is the chat open AI. I mean, that's how I use it. I pretty much use it as a Google. Um, and then if I want to really dive into certain things, I can kind of go back and forth with it a little bit. Uh, but it seems to be a great, sometimes if Google doesn't give you the answer right away, I don't even have the patience to like figure out how to make Google give me the answer. I just go to ChatGPT. Uh, maybe I'm just lazy. But either way, just going to mention that here because we've been talking about pretty much every podcast we talk about things just because it's you know here and now um so that's my last of like the list of bookmarks and i had a ton of bookmarks to crawl through so i'm sure i've missed some things that probably are good shares and maybe i'll crawl through it again another time um, but i'm definitely adding some of the things that you, all of our listeners have mentioned to my bookmarks so you know hopefully i won't repeat those as well or unless i feel like i need to because i just found some really cool applications um so yeah i think you have a last mention yeah, no, the um, one was the Randy Franklin's Ultimate Windows Security. Um, it is absolutely my go-to um, source for what event code is this? And oh, yeah. I want to talk about, um, you know, an exhaustive list about, you know, being able to answer the question, what can, I, what can Windows monitor for? And, you know, what does it look like? Um, for example, and first of all, the sources they have is Windows Audit, SharePoint Audit, SQL Server Audit, Exchange Audit, and then absolutely Sysmon. Um, they give you the best, or he gives you the best example of each event code that exists. Um, now, it's not all of the log sources on Windows because that would be an, this insane task. Uh, but the fact is that I've used this resource time and time again just to figure out, I see this event code in the data. I don't know what it is. Um, let me pivot and try and figure it out to see what's going on. This is where um, early on in my days when event code 4656 and 4663 kept blowing up, I was like, why is this so noisy? Can we detect using this event? And it was just so difficult <laughs> Because it's so loud, and I but I learned what it was like, and how to how to leverage it. Once you find out what it is, then you can say, "All right, well now I know what it is. This is how I'm going to work it into the process, and this is how I'm actually going to leverage that and still justify logging all that noise." Um, what's well, I was going to say? What's funny for me is I remember when I came across a site early on, and I was thinking, "Is this site real?" Because it looks like such an old website compared to like your standard current stuff. But it's just because it's like a seasoned person's website that he just like, I don't need to make it fancy, but it definitely has good valuable information there. Do know what he's doing. He definitely knows that he's like, here's the information, no extra flop. I'm good. So what's the last thing you got there? Oh, okay. Okay. So I was thinking about how to deliver this. Um, so I guess a little background. The big thing about threat hunting and the difference between Intel and instant response is IOCs, indicators of compromise. A lot of people, um, or I, even me, early on in the days, um, I thought hashes, IPs, and domains and URLs, that's what I needed, right? That's what I needed to be successful. Couldn't have find out. It helps, but... The fact is that hashes and file names, 
they change from campaign to campaign and sometimes even during the attack. So if you have abc.exe that was malicious, it executed, delete or moved itself and renamed itself and then deleted the original copy. If you're looking for abc.exe, you might not be able to find it, right? Um, and this actually came up in a conversation with the LinkedIn connection that I have. And he brought up a tool called Hashmorpher. Um, the idea behind it is that it just takes a file and I tested it and it creates it. We had an incident where there were four different versions of the same persistence binary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how are you going to, if it keeps changing, how are you going to pin it down? I mean, you could pin one down, but then they have three more. And if you just look at the, for that hash over and over, you're going to miss the others. Oh, sorry. I digress. Um, good answer. Or uh, good comment, Judith. Um, but, you know, someone throws something like this. I got to test it. And because the idea is, I guess their perspective was it causes problems for sensitive data. Um, I think the use case they provided was if you have like proprietary information on a server and you're looking to see if it's accessed or moved, if you have technology that's focused on that hash of the files in there, if it comes through and changes them and then extracts them, DLP might not catch it. Uh, or say DLP is data less permission. So I was like, well... Okay, if you're focusing on a hash, and, and I will I will be upfront. Um, I hope the community can help me here because I'm not very experienced with DLP technology. I think it can scan the contents and kind of get an idea of what's in there, look for keywords, look for titles, yep. et cetera. Um, Does that. But if you're, if the unique idea or the idea was that it's looking at a hash. Um, there's also some like categorization you can do if you do really good file management where you can put a, like extended properties on things. So you can say it's critical or top secret or whatever. And if they are tagged and you have a good process, that's another way DLP can kind of work where data, you know, it monitors where that data lies. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 you're good. You're good. Um, but but the, the issue was this: the hash is changing, right? If you're looking for a certain hash... How are you going to find it if they change it? So automatically, I was like, well, look for behaviors of that tool, right? Because, and it brought up a great conversation. But the idea is that even if it does change it, there's got to be, there's got to be a trail of when did it change? Why did it change? And what changed it? So, of course, I detonated in our lab um, and using Splunkin's uh, endpoint or uh, Windows Event Log and Sysmon, I was determined to find. I found what I expected to find. Um, so I took a picture or a screenshot of the initial hunt. And I, I'm going to share screenshots. Um, I don't want to get too messy with trying to do Splunk Live. Um, don't want to throw that off. Subi might not enjoy that. But the idea is I didn't change the executable name, which will probably happen. You know, that's threat actors don't come in here and drop cobaltstrike.exe. Right, that's not what they do. Um, but so I'm looking for the term hash morph, 
I'm using Windows Event Logs and Syslon, and then I'm looking at the de or the um, device that I detonated on, which is Desktop 2 BB, which you might recognize from workshops if you've attended them. Just saying. Um, but the idea was the first thing I want to establish is what event types and event codes are associated with Hashmore. So as you can see from top to bottom, we got event code one, which is syslon process create. We have 4663, 4666, wow, 4688, and 4656 is the top four. Now, 4663 is access was successfully provided um, or granted. 4688 is Windows event logs, version of the process create. And 4656 is a handle to an object was requested. So if you think about it logically, 4656 will happen first. It'll say, can I access this? Then the 4663 will say here, you know, it was granted access. So my question was, okay, that's how I want to look at it. Because if that executable is touching a file, there's got to be evidence. So the next thing I did was, um, oh, and event code 11, by the way, that's uh, that's Syslon version or a Syslon process. No, genius. Come on, man. We'll do it live. Um, Syslon's file created event code. Um, so, of course, I want to take a look at that. If it is creating a file and not accessing it and modifying the hash, all it's doing is creating the same data or copying that file, creating the same data in it, which will change the hash. Or, well, it does change the hash. Now, I was looking for only evidence if you're logging it most places. Yeah, that is, that is the issue. Data. Now, that's the fight that's always the problem. Um, but the idea is that it created a new file, and the new file, or and through this, I guess, I'll share the screen here. Yeah. Through the GUI, you can see at the bottom the old file hash, the new file hash. So however it did that, um, you know, it is what it is. But you have the trail of the um, the file being created, and then if you come in and follow through with the four six five six and the four six six three, um, which was my next query, is that um, you know we once again looked at well we looked at endpoint computer name event code in four six five six and four six six three. You can see that it was or that file in the C user public music was requested access and then granted access and by hashmorpher.exe. So, you know, the question of how does this work, you know, I love the fact that we get to sit here and play games like that, where we say, you know, what if the threat actor is going to use this in a real environment? It's like, well, we have the solution here. Like we, and this goes along with that I read team where, you got to understand what visibility you can get from some some activity like this before you can even take a stab a stab so, at solving the problem. I haven't looked at the code of the tool. I didn't look at the tool when he brought it up, and I feel like it's something similar to ghostwriting. Are you familiar with ghostwriting? I am not. So, um, ghostwriting is a technique often used, kind of not necessarily to change the hash. 
but to kind of change how the behavior of an executable might work. Um, so for instance, at the assembly level, so when you look at an assembly, you have data stored in registers that the process uses. And if you look at your assembly, you can find where a register maybe gets cleared out because it's going to be used for something else. So before that, you can do all these operations with that register to separate certain things in the code. But by adding code in, you're also changing the hash theoretically. But what you're adding in is useless. It doesn't really do anything. You're like, I'm going to add this, subtract this, do this, and then it gets wiped and erased and nulled out to be used later. But you break up the code so much. And I want to say, I think it was John Strands. I mean, I don't want to throw names out there and be wrong, but he he was talking about how they were trying to think, I, I think Mimi Cats, they were trying to get it past certain security tools. And they did some ghostwriting techniques and like seven passes of ghostwriting, you know, they got through past so many endpoint tools, but once they did like 14 times, they were able to get past all of them because of the signature-based detection. Um, because things look for specific code sometimes in certain areas. Uh, so it's an interesting technique and obviously um, so, something people should, you know, dig into, I think. I think it's fascinating and it, it seemed, it's very trivial to do um, when you understand it, so... So yeah, it's kind of my two cents. So Soupy threw in. Uh, I see that. Ghostwriter. So exploit DB. That didn't make the cut or <laughs> the list of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's another. It's lot of my favorites because I know it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's another That's a great resource. resource. Just great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's too funny. Yeah, thanks for that honorable mention. But yeah, no, I had I had a lot of fun trying to figure and. I like that you went for the code part because I could look at the code and pick out nothing. And I, I like that. Once again, I always like that perspective of you may know the things that I don't. I may be able to answer the things that you have questions for. No, man. Teams are important. That's why teams exist. Exactly. So I think that kind of covers our artifacts. I know we had a long list this time, right? It took up almost the first front you know, hour or so, um, being down a man because, you know, work-life balance is important. But I think we're going to pivot to our discussion, and I don't, I think I, I'll start off, right? It's really an opinion piece, um, and I'm kind of curious what our listeners think, too. Um, so the topic I'm going to throw your way, and then I kind of have my two cents as well. Um, so there's cybersecurity professionals um, that we talk to or, or interact with at times too. They're asking about, you know, SIMs or ERs, and they wonder which one they really should prioritize on um, as far as being maybe more important or more effective or whatever that, whatever that looks like. Um, so from what you've interacted with, with people and things, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And the community listening, um, I, I, we might have a poll we'll throw up there too, but, you know, chime in as well. Yeah, so I love this question because um, I think I could always whip out the the answer. It depends. Um, it really depends on... Uh, oh, no, I agree, J-Dub. So if you are a large organization that has the staff to be ready to start and tune a sim, you know, full blast for your organization... That's not a bad place to start because it gives you the flexibility of choosing what to log. Now, if you are just getting started out and your question is, 
where do I start? I would definitely throw an EDR your way and say, listen, this is designed to log certain things. Now, it's a lot more rigid where the, um, the designer of the EDR has already chosen what's supposed to be logged and what's important. Um, so that might leave uh, some gaps in visibility. Now, a lot of the EDRs that I've used here, um, they have really robust visibility. So there's only been um, a couple things that I haven't seen that I've seen in a SIM or Sysmon logs or window window event logs. Um, but <laughs> registry events. What? Registry events. <laughs> registry events. That's my biggest. Absolutely. That's my pet peeve. <laughs> Whenever you have a million registry keys, how are you supposed to fit that into one EDR? Um, not, and yeah, that's always the thing. That's fine. You said that. That's always the example I use is, yeah, yeah you pick up this registry. It's like, well, no one's ever heard of that thing. Um, you know, you had to find that 1998 forum that answered the question like, what was this? Um, but I would absolutely go, I would say start with EDR. Um, C is my answer. You need both for that exact problem is that if you have all this logging in EDR, and you identify that you have gaps, that SIM will allow you the flexibility to fill those gaps. Also, whenever you have network devices and you have cloud infrastructure and you have all these other tools that are being used um, as well that you may need to audit, you can't shove those into an EDR. And I'll say yet, I haven't, you know, I haven't come across it, but you have all these external log sources that don't fit into the EDR bill. So you'll need a place to collect those. Um, that's normally what I tell everyone. Um, yes, EDR, if you're small and starting out, absolutely, because that will solve, it won't solve all your problems, but it'll get you on the right track, or at least give you enough resources to do something with. This, the, the SIM, it takes, I've seen security engineers putting in a lot of work just to get it, not only to keep it operational, uh, but to make sure the resources are down, um, make sure that, you know, with the SIM logging comes at different levels, especially when it comes to ingestion. So price goes up as you ingest more and so on. Um, but yes, absolutely. J-Dub, that's what I tell people. I love the comments so far. I do like J-Dub's comments about, you know, looking at costs, right? As far as what it takes to actually manage a SIM and run a SIM versus EDR and the benefits right out of the gate. Also, like uh, Linux Ace, when he talks about Elastic Stack, like that's absolutely true. Like, I never think about Elastic being in the EDR um, with kind of the SIM component. Um, so that's kind of cool, too. And, you know, I mean, some of it's, or most of it's open source. I'm sure you'd want support, so you'd pay for something. Um, but those are some cool comments. Uh, I, I don't want to jump into my answer until you're done, but I just want to make, you know, call those out. No, I'm good. And because uh, I, I agree with a lot of these. Um, I like elastic. I really do. Um, I guess I just like the data aggregation of Splunk and CrowdStrike better. I don't know. Yeah, That's just my first thing. And it, it trans transforms and data manipulation and things can go a long way. And you, I, I really want elastic to get there, and especially they can lever like layer on top the visualizations you can build. Got to be really powerful, right? Um, and I'm sure maybe. Maybe it's there, and I'm just not as savvy because I don't spend time trying to figure all this out, all this stuff out all the time. Um, I mean, they have the version, they have the visualizations. Yeah, but like you know, visualizations are kind of like aggregation, but not quite the same of 
things we transform on a day-to-day right so so yeah so my thoughts um kind of align with some of the comments that that we've been seeing so i think sims are really really powerful um but that's be managed you know kind of like if you were to buy an ids and not manage it and just go with you know your your free signatures you're not really getting much boards and sims usually come pre-bundled with signatures or detections or whatever and you still don't really get too much or worst case you know you're not tuning it so you just end up with a lot of noise um which i think is a problem it kind of can be more of a problem than a solution at that point um but usually the other problem you face with sims is you're not really under the con you don't really control the end devices someone else is usually managing those so like the configuration to make sure you're getting the right data and all that kind of stuff is like it becomes like that political um slash collaboration aspect too um that can make managing sins even harder because they're already a tough technology to do i wouldn't say tough but they're very time consuming technology to do right but you have to kind of leverage the rest of what you're trying to protect to make it successful uh and then we we saw that the you need to have you know talented sim engineers and analysts. I feel like you need both um, when it comes to interacting with a sim because the sim engineers really are the ones that can help build and optimize, um, but the analysts are the ones that need to be good enough to provide the really good feedback to the engineers. So that means like a, a you know continuous cycle between the two groups, which makes that really powerful and strong. Um, and then obviously, you have, you know, for sims to be successful, I mentioned you have to have good relationships between system owners and the configurations. But EDRs, right? So some of the strengths there are they already normalize data. So in a sim, you know, sometimes when you pull different data sources, it's not normalized. You have to figure out how to normalize it. Sometimes there's templates for it, um, what have you. Um, but sims don't provide protection capabilities. EDRs do, right? So you, you need some level of an EDR or some protection, I think, at the endpoint. Um, because, you know, the ult- at the end of the day, you kind of want to try to prevent things that at least the lower common denominator things as much as possible. Cause if you're saturating your time with those, um, you're not really getting a lot of gain for your technology. So, but with EDRs, you still have to have a good analyst, right? So EDRs can be very complex, very quick when you dive into the data, uh, depending on what they monitor and what they're able to monitor. I- I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know I don't know all the ins and outs of every EDR tool and the fullest capabilities. I mean, the one thing that always blows my mind, and I understand why they do it, but in CrowdStrike, they have such good data, but for them to really optimize everything, they kind of map everything to different numerical values, which makes complete yeah. sense from an operational. But if, you, if you're not dug into it and you don't know these things, you don't really know what you can do. Like, you don't know what your capabilities really are. So, you know, that, that could be um, a sticking point for some EDRs, right? Um, but... What's great about EDRs too, not only is the data normalization, think about how we work today. With all the remote work, it's really nice to have something that's reliable that you can get data from that is being protected. Or even better, if you're an organization or small enough and you have a bring your own device, how hard is it to configure someone's device to send logs to your stuff? It's not going to happen. So the SIM kind of falls apart on those legs, right? Um, in some aspects. I mean, I know like Splunk has Splunk Forder and things like that. But if you can throw an EDR on there, you kind of just feel better all around if someone's bringing their own device. Um, so that helps. Uh, but obviously, I, my answer would be C. I, I feel like you would need both. But when it comes to budget, you're really looking at, well, how much do you need of one versus the other? Um, and it kind of depends on your scenario. Like I mentioned, if you're doing a lot of bring your own device, a lot of remote work, maybe EDRs make more sense. 
or your footprints very dispersed. Um, if everything is, or, or if it's really hard to make sure you can, you don't have good asset inventory, Sims are going to fall apart just on that, right? Because you're not logging things you need to be logging. So it makes it really hard to have that visibility. Um, so, but good scenarios would be like, if you can incorporate what you need to log in a sim and maybe send over some data from the EDR, which is probably more alert driven. So an EDR where you can build alerts, so you can make sure to get some data that's relevant to your sim. So you can say this endpoint or this user is causing a lot more activity that we normally wouldn't see. So you could do some uh, aggregation there. Um, but the sim is really your blind spot. So if you really are using both sim and EDR, you should really look at them as how do you use these technologies together and not how are they independently different? Because there are blind spots in EDRs that your sim can easily solve as long as you can get the data from the endpoints. Um, and also application logging. That's the one thing I think you run into some issues with with EDRs. You don't see application data usually, right? So that's something you can you can collect and do. But if yeah, if you don't have a good strategy going into it, your sim ends up becoming just your log aggregation where you collect data that hopefully you can sift through and then you're kind of using your EDR as your main security source um, for things. But that's kind of my take. I don't know if that made sense. I didn't really, I mean, I guess I did pick C, but... What question for you? Highlights worked. What about skill level from the analyst perspective? So how would you define skill level? Like, there's definitely different tiers there. So you're standing up a SOC. Someone asked you this question. Um, you know, like where do what you, you need? Yeah. Like, how do you, what about the question of, well, we have these analysts, what's going to be easiest for them to get used to or quickest response time or whatever the case may be? Yeah. So I'm always on the proponent where I always like to get green talent because they're the ones that are most hungry and most capable to learn. Um, but if you're starting a new operation, I think you need to support trying to get the kind of the best unicorn, but the unicorns that enjoy like teaching, right? The people that like to engage um, as much as possible. Like if you if you get one good analyst and one really good engineer that really have the social capacity to share their insights and communicate, you can kind of build around them and get really good talent at, at probably a cheaper cost because they're green and you'll have a very capable operation now you still have to protect your really good talent they can't just say well since we don't have great talent everywhere we're going to dump everything on these people that are good because you're going to shoot yourself in the foot when they leave um but but yeah i don't know like you, you do need i mean you, you can't i mean and i'm also thinking like a really big operation too you know if you're a smaller scale shop then that might not be the same um but that's kind of how I think about it, I guess. And it, I mean, I don't have a lot of experiences in many new socks or many different socks. Uh, I just know that the ones we or the one that we built worked really well. Um, so maybe I'm a little biased too, but we kind of had that kind of mix. We also had some really good support as well. Right. But I mean, leadership leadership definitely helped us like helped us grow because we didn't have the same hurdles I think a lot of people deal with. Which was refreshing. Could have gone the opposite way. Been missing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you another question. Okay. But we're at eight twenty. Well, we yeah, we got ten minutes. Okay. Um. All right. So you ran a sock before. <laughs> yeah. I know that 
because I was there, once again, causing the pain and suffering. Um, one of the biggest issues um, that I hear about, that I read about, is asset inventory. And this, this starts to lend its way into um, you know, shadow IT, rogue devices, and whatnot. Um, but I know that there's you know this thing out there called the CIS 18 critical uh, security controls. Um, you know, out of these 18, which ones would you prioritize? And how would you use that resource to tackle the problem of asset inventory? So I feel like this is a trick question. Um, but I'll tell you why. Um, so if people aren't familiar with the CIS controls, I think there's 18 of them now, and they cover a wide array array of things. But the thing that I think often happens in security organizations is when they want to implement CIS controls, it becomes a security-only function. And CIS controls is a measure of maturity and security for the organization, which means everybody plays a part. And I think the best way to look at the controls on what controls are important to you, depending on your role, if you actually go to their website and you pull down or you have to request, you know, provide your email and things like you would for a white paper, the updated list of controls, but there's an Excel spreadsheet. And what's fantastic about the Excel spreadsheet, it also breaks up the categories of all the controls based on the NIST categories with identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. And knowing your function in those categories helps you define what controls do I care about the most or should be able to cover down on. For instance, a sock. Typically, if you were to like put really narrow rails on a sock, it's on the detect, respond, more than likely, right? Um, and... So when you look at CIS for a SOC, they're not really primarily, everyone can benefit on the other areas, right? But they should be primarily focused on, do we cover down on all the detect and response stuff? Um, or if you're in audit, you know, maybe identify and protect are important, right? You know, so like depending on where you sit in this security, but then, you know, in IT in general, when you talk about like asset inventory, you know, you're kind of responsible for some of those things. So... Um, it kind of forces the organization to work on that. Um, so one of the things that I think is also really powerful with the CIS controls that people should be thinking about um, is when it comes to metrics. I'm kind of curious if anyone's ever done a lot with CIS controls and how they measure themselves as far as metrics go. We did a big exercise um, before I left my last place using... Um, a data lake to kind of pull on various sources of data to measure these. And it was kind of a fun project and I thought we were doing a very good job before I left. So hopefully that was still going well. Um, but basically, um, we would measure like, for instance, if we take asset inventory, you mentioned that, I mean, that's a big one, right? Um, because it, it's a huge strain. If your security folks are constantly asking operational folks, Hey, what is this? It, what is this supposed to be doing? You know, blah, you know, whatever question you had, because they don't have, a, it's not recorded anywhere of this specific device. And so what ends up happening is now you become a strain on the organization. No one really wants to work with a security folk because they're asking too many questions that to their, and their perspective are stupid. And then when something really serious comes up, you're not going to get the quick response that you likely would want or need. And it doesn't look good for anybody. Um, but uh, so 
one of the things we did as an example, um, looking at asset inventory is we looked at, well, what is the one tool that is the, the truth tool, the tool that everybody goes to for asset inventory to say, we've got this inventory. This is where we look things up. And that's not enough when I think you measure things in CIS, for instance, um, we would then say, well, we have a vulnerability because we do vulnerability management. So let's look at what it discovers and let's take that dump and let's look at DHCP logs and take that dump. And let's cross-reference to what we say is the, the, the tool, truth, source, whatever you want to call it. And how much percentage-wise does it cover on that? Is everything we see in DHCP from like a hostname basis or everything that's discovered from our vulnerability tool, is that in our asset management? If it is, great. If it's 95%, I'd probably say great. And you kind of come up with your own internal grade scales, but you're basically like poor, medium, or good. Um, and then basically you can look at, uh, and that, and then you can do that for all the different metrics that are aligned in that Excel spreadsheet, which is kind of cool. And you can get a maturity level, right? As far as total score that you could have based on the things you can do versus um what you actually scored yourself at. So you kind of have the percentage of the things you can measure. And then they have implementation groups, which I think is a fantastic measure. It's kind of like a maturity perspective. It's, it used to be done based on size. Um, and I know I'm getting on like crazy tangents, but I love this stuff. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, but the implementation group, uh, what's really good about that is it kind of is a way to measure, okay, where do we want to be or where should we be? And you can do the same thing where you can say, well, how many of the implementation group categories should we be able to do? And it's like a binary, yes or no, we can't do them. And then if you do do them, where do you score yourself like one through three, right? Or medium or good. You don't want to get too in the grain of details on that. Um, and then you can sit there and you can say, what's the total value I could have if I wasn't in implementation group? So you can say, what percentage am I? So it's a really good way to grade yourself, right? And it's not a... And this is why I don't think it should be a security function only because what happens is, is no one wants to give themselves an F, right? But if everybody shares the F because it's an organizational thing, then everybody wants to get better. If one person has the F, no one wants to talk about it. Um, so I think it's, that's how it should be approached. Now, granted, maybe your security teams, because they understand the data and why, why it's important, um, maybe they're your your source of truth as far as, hey, if we have these questions about these metrics, that's where the data is going and they're the ones that can provide the answer. But as far as getting that number and getting those things, like your leadership's failed if they put it all in security, uh, in my opinion. So yeah, I think it's a very strong resource. And you mentioned asset inventory to kick this whole conversation off. Um, and I thought it was a great place because it's incredibly important for security, but it's incredibly important for the organization too. Um, and then security can't do asset inventory. It's someone else has got to do it. Other people are building things, putting things online. Um, so that's kind of my take there. I'm actually, I've been looking at the discord. I'm curious if there's any comments yet. Anyone's blasting me out saying I'm wrong, but yeah, that's, I guess my two cents on where I, where I stand for CIS. I think people should definitely check out the resources. One really cool thing they started doing is white papers on topics. So I did see recently they had like a scheduled task. How, how do you defend against malicious scheduled task and how CIS stacks against those things. If you're doing certain things, I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, JW, you had right, right. The whole organization function is what security is. It's not just one, one team. So, but we're usually the spearheaders, right? But yeah, 
So yeah, uh, that's my take on on your question the best I can, I guess. No, no, I like it. Uh, I, I, and that, that's why I like those questions because I hear them a lot or I see them or read them a lot and I always have the, the cybersecurity perspective, right? I go, I, I got that lens stuck on, um, but you were the leadership. You were that role where it was bigger picture. That's why I always like this, but <laughs> um, I always ask executives if they would be comfortable managing the orbs financial assets at the same time, the same way. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, uh, lose a bunch of money? Oh, either way. But yeah, no, it, you always have those unique perspectives of big picture where I was just in the trenches. Yeah, I mean, I, I love talking metrics because I think metrics is a fun place to try to solve. But not only that, but it's just fascinating when you find answers in data, kind of like threat hunting or doing detection or security in general. There's just things that you just don't think about or things that aren't obvious until you look and try to put things together. So that's what makes this whole field exciting to me. Oh, yeah. Metrics is near the top. Even though I don't really do metrics anymore, I still think about them all the time. Budget isn't unlimited. Sometimes you have to make do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we've got two minutes left, so I think we got to work on closing this out. So bring us home, Wooly. I know. Here I go. <laughs> Warming so, up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyways, I really want to thank everyone for joining. Uh, I love the comments we got. Uh, I learned a lot, even from some of the sources people were dropping when we were talking sources, so that was much appreciated. Um, hopefully we we can keep this kind of going, especially on uh, future live podcasts. So love talking shop with friends and colleagues. Um, if you like what you hear, uh, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a good review. It really helps us kind of get out there um, and hopefully bring more people to the table to discuss. Uh, it's it, it can be a very brief review. Hopefully it's good. Uh, and then they can join the conversation as well. And also for those... Um, we do a brief, I say brief, it's kind of, it's not 30 or 45 minutes anymore. It's maybe closer to 45 minutes. Uh, but we try to hit some, like the top five breaking news topics that we find interesting or maybe relevant, uh, weekly. So you can, you can tune in for that. We try to walk through intelligence reports or technical write-ups or even just news things. And like, why do we care? Or what are some things to look for and how to think about these problems? So check us out there as well. And uh, once again, I appreciate everyone's activity. I uh, love having these conversations. Thanks, Lee, for the great conversations and the questions as well. Um, and happy hunting, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.